Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Lee Cattell in the captain's chair this morning until 11 o'clock. Live, if you miss it, you can go to WDEVradio.com and go to the Vermont Viewpoint podcast and uh, catch up on us from there. Time to talk some national issues as Bob Nay joins us, our national correspondent. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, Lee. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, very happy here in Vermont, but uh, it looks like just hours ago the the timeline ended for the truce between Israel and Hamas and Things are starting to heat up again quickly in the Middle East. Well, they are, Lee. And at first, everybody thought, okay, this is going to continue on. You know, for every uh, Israeli hostage released, uh, 10 Palestinians were released. And it looked like it was going to happen. But then the ceasefire expired at 7 a.m. There were some uh, rockets fired. I think it was by, uh, I'm not sure, it was by Hamas, but I'm not sure where they you know did it at. And, uh, of course, uh, the, you know, uh, response by Israel continued. Now, this time was a little bit different. They went towards the southern portion of Gaza because they've had, Israelis have had people evacuate the northern portion into the southern, but they they went into the southern portion. There was a building, large building hit, about 32 people uh, estimated were killed in that. And uh, uh, the hospitals, you know, are overwhelmed um, as it is. So, as this goes, uh, that will be a big issue uh, with the hospitals pleading with the United Nations, et cetera, for medical supplies. Bob, I've been uh, fascinated watching the American politicians twist and turn their way through this Israel-Hamas conflict. On one point, uh, fiercely defending Israel's right to defend themselves, and then uh, almost uh, just a few moments later, urging them to, you know, not push too much pressure on Hamas or involve any non-military people, but in in the West Bank, it can be kind of hard to discern who the military people are from the people who aren't. Well, it is, and that's part of the problem, and of course, the civilian casualties are, you know, extremely high. Uh, but within the Congress, this has become fascinating. Actually, um, Congresswoman uh, Ballant uh, from uh, you know, uh, has gotten a lot of notoriety, of course, because of the fact that she's Jewish, but also she has come out and has asked for, you know, certain things to be to be done to support uh, medical aid, et cetera, into uh, Gaza. And, of course, she's from Vermont at large district, uh, you know, um, uh, congresswoman. And then Bernie Sanders, who started his uh, comments out with, I'm Jewish, because, you know, after all, uh, that gives some insulation that, you know, he's not against Jewish people, obviously, because he's Jewish. And he is pushing to actually tie some language to Israeli aid as to Israel allowing for some supplies to come in. So that's happening. Now, I do want to tell you, there was a Jewish caucus forum, which is the first time they've ever done it. When I was there, I used to approve the caucuses. They never asked for one. They formed it. And Jerry Nadler who uh, was chairman of the House Judiciary Committee from New York. He's Jewish. I served with Jerry. He actually doesn't like the idea of a Jewish caucus. He said it's splitting Jewish members on where they stand and also a lot of progressives who are supporting Palestinians. So kind of wanted to give you a flavor, Lee. It's all over the place in a lot of cases, especially within the the Democratic side. Well, let me... I know a lot of people, I watch TV, cable news and all this, and people are talking about possible political solutions. But honestly, in my opinion, 
This is a this is something that is working on a spiritual level. It's a religious war. One of the tenets of Islam is that if a Muslim country takes over a territory once, even if they give it back, they consider it theirs forever. And the Muslims took over Jerusalem, so uh, the Muslim community feels like Jerusalem belongs to them. And that is that not an intractable part of their uh, doctrine that means that this Israeli problem is not a problem that man can solve? Well, yes, it actually goes into uh, Jerusalem itself. That's why for years uh, the United States policy was not to name it uh, as the as the capital of Israel officially with us because the and I you know I've been there many times as you stand there you can see three religions you see the wailing wall the mosque of the gold dome on top of it and the church of the holy sepulcher to the side and that's the three you know religions and the muslims do claim uh, you know that is theirs as do the uh the proponents of Judaism so yes also tied to this beyond our modern times is is a deep religious feeling and i've heard you know all kinds of different religious theories uh it's very interesting uh, over the course of this process yeah and if you go back to like uh scriptures from Hosea and Ezekiel 2600 years ago they predicted the reformation of uh, Israel millennium into the future so it's kind of interesting to see it all unfold in our age today right and part of the problem of course now you have people there so no matter who claims what to wear why and how you've got gaza strip and you've got the west bank and you have israel and so it collides into modern times for eventually hopefully some type of solution to it i agree now let's move back over to the political stuff here in the united states where uh, George Santos is on the hot seat. The Republican congressman is uh, appears about ready to be shown the door. Right. You know, I I was at the last expulsion held, which was Congressman Jim Trafficant. In fact, I sat next to him. It was a very painful couple of hours. Uh, I knew Jim. He was from Ohio. He was expelled. Uh, we offered him to resign, and and he wouldn't. Uh, he made the, he marked the sixth person for that to happen to. Now Santos would make history because he would be the first person would be expelled that wasn't convicted. Trafficant was convicted, and the others were too. So that's a little different twist here. I must say, uh, you know, putting myself back in the situation, if I was, you know, back in Congress, the first two expulsion votes, I would have voted to not expel Santos because it was just let's expel him. Well. You know, Connor, or Senator Menendez from New Jersey is under some terrific indictments from the feds, and he would be in the same position as Santos. If you're going to expel Santos, why not expel Menendez before a trial? Now, what complicates things, Lee, this third time here today, and this is what I don't know what I'd do if I was there, the Ethics Committee has recommended now to expel him. So our members are going to have to make a decision. Ethics Committee says expel him, which never happened before with Santos, but yet he has not been to trial yet. So if, this is kind of a tough one. I'm guessing uh, I'm guessing that he'll be expelled, but uh, this is a tough one because you always have innocent until proven guilty in the United States, and this would be a case where he didn't go to trial and he was expelled. Does he need mere majority to expel him in the vote? 
No, it, it, this one's a two-thirds. So, Two? oh, okay. Yeah. If it, if it was mere majority, he'd be gone. But yeah. no, this one's uh, this one takes uh, more of a super vote. So, I don't know. I, I've been trying to predict how this goes. I'm sure a lot of members who supported him last time will not support him, but supported the process of you know not going to trial and being expelled. The ethics committee mentioning you know officially in a decision to actually say expel him makes a little bit different flavor to this one. So I'm I'm going to go on to the side that he'll be expelled. And uh, the Democrats are I, – I, my notes on this were awful, Bob, but you'll get a story about the Democrats and a subpoena with the Supreme Court. What is this story? Oh, yeah. This one's going to have some legs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now. What happened was the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Durbin – I served with Senator Durbin when he was a House member. He's, he's quite capable, you know, as, as chairman of the committee to, to run it and answer things, you know, as they come up. And he had an inquiry into the Supreme Court ethics. This, of course, goes to Justice Thomas. So he, uh, Chairman Durbin, Senator Durbin, made a motion to subpoena a Republican billionaire named Harlan Crow, which we've heard about, who, uh, you know, uh, provided some benefits and trips, et cetera, to Justice Thomas. And he wants to subpoena judicial activist Leonard Leo. And they want to look into lavish gifts provided to justices on the court, of course, Thomas, and if there's any others. Now, Senator Graham, a Republican, Lindsey Graham, said he wanted to raise a point of order. Uh, he didn't want to proceed with the roll call. And then Senator Durbin said, we're in the middle of a roll call. We're going to do it. Republican members left without voting, as did Lindsey Graham. So the vote came out uh, 11 to 0 with no Republicans voting. That means there'll be subpoenas that are issued. Now, What's interesting about this, once this starts and these people come before the committee and they're asked some, you know, uh, questions that are, are, I don't think will come out well. You know, what did you provide? How did you provide it? Why did you provide it? Were you worried about ethics? So when I say this has legs, this may lead to something more down the line of a congressional response with new ethics rules because, frankly, what the Supreme Court came out with uh, – was pretty milk toast about a month ago with new ethics rules. And uh, one final note, Bob. I, I, the uh, story out of Ukraine, uh, the leader Zelensky in the Ukraine is probably worried that support from the United States, uh, military support, is waning. I hear that the Ukraine army, the average age of the people that they are recruiting right now is 50 they're running out of men to fight in this counteroffensive against Russia. And it sounds like American diplomats are starting to talk about maybe making a peace offering between yes. Russia and Ukraine. You, yes, you hit a very important story. And this morning when I saw Zelensky's comments about supporting Ukraine and he, they were worried that Israel uh, was going to overshadow them, that's, that's a battle Zelensky cannot win. Ukraine versus Israel, he cannot, he cannot win that battle of who gets the money. Israel is going to get the money and the support. The Ukraine is starting to splinter, especially with Republicans, frankly, more than, uh, more than Democrats. And with the, you know, average age, I mean, I'm trying to think if I would go try to fight a war at 50-some. You know, the average age going up is a problem. Now, Russia has its own set of problems, but I think you you, you make a good uh, reference here, Lee, with the fact of the diplomats especially. They're starting to back off a little bit 
in multiple areas, not just the United States, when I say back off, starting to look at alternatives, you can almost see where eventually some deal is going to have to be made with Putin. Something. That, that deal. I, mean, I, I think it's inevitable. That deal is probably going to require concession of uh, Ukraine territory, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I can't imagine anything else. Now, the only way to go around this is for us and allies, not just the United States, but allies, to go full scale money. But then again, if they don't have the, the manpower over in the Ukraine, I, I don't know where they go with this. Mm. Yeah, I hear you, Bob. I, hey, I appreciate your time this morning, Bob. I Thank always you. enjoy the conversation. We'll catch up with you somewhere down the road. Okay. Thank you. This is Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV-FM and AM, streaming at WDEVradio.com. I'm Lee Cattell in the chair this morning, and you can call us 802-244-1777. Colin Flanders joins us from seven days to talk about uh, the, the latest developments in the shooting last weekend of the three Palestinian men in Burlington. Colin, good morning. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Morning. Thanks for having me. So uh, the three young men that were shot, how are they coming along health-wise? Yeah, so as of right now, the latest that we've heard is that two of the young men are in recovery, and I think they are expected to uh, to, to have a full recovery. Um, the third young man who um, had the bullet lodged near his spine, I think uh, there are still a lot of questions about um, what his long-term outlook is going to look like. As far as we understand, there is still a, a big concern that he may never be able to walk again. Um, the young men have started to do some interviews. They've been talking to some national media, and I think uh, the New York Times just had a story recently um, about how they're faring uh, mentally, which is also obviously a big piece of this. And I think they are understandably really shaken up by it. Um, I think one of the young men had told the paper that um, he's – um, even just like walking between hotel rooms now, he's starting to feel this fear that something might happen. And um, so so I think it's a long recovery, both physically and mentally. Well, I understand that. After growing up in the West Bank, you'd think Burlington, Vermont, would be a safer place to live. Um, but uh, these days, things are a little different. So uh, these, three, these three men who were shot, uh, they were from three different colleges in separate states. So what brought them to this area? Yeah, so so while they are from three different colleges, they've actually known each other for a long time. They were close friends growing up in the West Bank, attending a school there um, that they all graduated from. And um, so they were in Burlington because they were visiting for the holiday, actually. One of the young men um, has family here, uh, was staying with their uncle, and um, had actually been spending what we've kind of heard described as a low-key weekend here. They were uh, attended a birthday party on the night of the shooting for the for a um, pair of eight-year-old twins, and um, we're kind of just hanging out, walking around the neighborhood, um, like the same way that uh, a lot of college students do around this time, uh, just visiting family. Seems fairly benign, but uh, what do we know about our shooter, Jason Eaton? Apparently, according to what the uh, young Palestinian men said, he basically stepped off the porch and, and shot them without any warning. Yeah, uh, we still don't know very much about uh, Mr. Eaton. I mean, some details have come out. Um, just yesterday, one of my colleagues uh, published a story about um, his time in New York, where he had lived for um, a number of years. He, uh, His family in the Vermont area, he 
spent some time here, but lived in New York for a long time. And um, at least two women in New York had expressed concerns to police about him uh, long before he allegedly opened fire on these three college students. Uh, one in the summer of 2013 contacted police shortly after ending a relationship with him, saying he had left a shotgun at her house and she didn't feel comfortable uh, sort of connecting with him to give it back. She alluded to a history of domestic violence and explained that he has a history of mental illness. Um, and then six years later, a second woman said that he had been um, kind of harassing her after she had told him to leave uh, her alone. Um, we understand that he moved to the Burlington area sometime this summer. Um, he had been involved in a couple local um, churches. He had he had been volunteering. Um, but we still don't know very much about uh, how he was spending his time here, but also uh, in the days leading up to this. Um, and I think the big unanswered question right now is sort of why this happened. Um, the families of the three young men have obviously come out and said that they believe that this was a clear a hate crime. Um, and But they have said that they understand that there's a legal threshold that needs to be cleared. And investigators say that they are still looking for evidence to point to exactly uh, why Mr. Eaton may have carried out this act. Well, that is carried out this act. That, that that is kind of an interesting question for the whole thing because, uh, as people have pointed out, looking at uh, Eaton's social media background, there were no mentions of Israel or Palestine in any of his social media history. We also heard that CNBC reported he was fired from his job at Cuso Financial Services in uh, Chittenden County earlier this month. So there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation about the specific nature of why the shooting was, but there's no there's no concrete background to point at one particular thing. There isn't, and I think that is a really uh, an, an unfortunate and also kind of interesting aspect of this is that. Oftentimes when these incidents happen, and I think we have unfortunately become so accustomed to the aftermath of uh, mass shootings that uh, I think most people know that there is usually an identifiable um, uh, line of thinking that these people have. Um, Maybe it's a manifesto they've left behind. Maybe it's postings that you said on social media. Um, But Mr. Eaton, it's kind of difficult to pin down exactly where he was as far as the uh, political spectrum. I mean, you look at his uh, his Twitter account, which is locked. Um, but even in the little bio there, he describes himself as a radical citizen trolling around the internet. I mean, uh, it, it's it's a really hard to go off of anything he's posted online. Um, but I, I think that investigators are hoping that some of the things they've taken from his apartment, including some computer hard drives, maybe they'll find some stuff on there. Um, we're waiting to hear about that. I will say. Uh, I spent um, some time the day after the shooting in the neighborhood where this happened, actually before Mr. Eaton had even been arrested. I uh, was outside the apartment building for at least a couple hours, knocking on doors, talking to people. Um, I was really interested in whether anyone had heard anything before it happened. Um, you would think if it was a um, if it was a, uh, a hate, hateful targeted act, maybe there was some yelling, some commotion beforehand. Um, but even the young man said that he said absolutely nothing as he um, stumbled down the stairs and, and then just opened fire. So it is a really big question at the center of all of this. But uh, you can understand why coming from the family, it, it seems to them pretty clear that these young men were wearing um, these traditional Palestinian scarves. We're speaking a mix of English and Arabic. And in their eyes, there doesn't really seem to be a question of why this happened. The How big is the Palestinian community in Burlington? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the the pro Palestinian movement has been uh, active here for many years, and and uh, the day after the shooting, there was actually a rally outside of the outside of city hall where there had to be maybe two to three hundred people um and i think there is another rally coming up tomorrow in montpelier where there is hopes that there will be many more i mean this is obviously a galvanizing moment um and the emotions at the rally in burlington were very raw and i think that um as some of the speakers have said like a lot of attention has been paid um, over on what's going on in Gaza, and they've been waking up every day checking the news to see the latest. They've been talking to their friends and family in the area and to see, uh, to wake up one day and find that it had kind of uh, arrived back here at home was a really surreal experience for them. And so I think a lot of people are seeing, uh, are, are feeling motivated by this to, to get out, to speak up, to call on um, leaders to, to weigh in. And I think we're, we're seeing some impact too. I mean, uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, Senator Peter Welch came out in favor of an indefinite ceasefire in Gaza. So I think the pressure is clearly ramping up, and this is adding to it. And as far as the Jewish community and the Palestinian community in Burlington, uh, their representatives must be uh, communicating very carefully these days. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely expect, <clears throat> I would definitely suspect that, and I think. Uh, again, this is another reason why a lot of people are really interested in finding out if there is any um, concrete evidence as to why Mr. Eaton carried this out. Um, I think that the Jewish leaders are obviously paying close attention and, and have uh, spoken out about this. But I think uh, it, until we know a little more about that, um, the conversations are obviously going to be uh, uh Pretty difficult to get past. Uh, the uh, Palestinian community representatives and the Jewish representatives in Burlington communicating or having an ongoing uh, conversation? Yeah, I, I will admit I haven't done too much reporting on that. I'm not exactly sure uh, what their, uh, what that looks like right now. I do know the Palestinian community is uh, trying to have an open dialogue with some of the state leaders and with city officials, and um, they were initially frustrated after the shooting of of, of how it was handled, and I think that uh, they're going to continue um, keeping tabs on, on sort of how the state, the city, and, and co- sort of the country responds to this. And what do we expect next in a courtroom? Yeah, so we're still waiting to hear on uh, when Mr. Eaton will come before a judge for a bail hearing. Um, he's currently being held without bail. Um, the state will probably come forward with evidence to show why they think he's a risk to the public. Um, I don't I don't imagine there will be too difficult of a task in proving that, given the, the seriousness of the allegations. That might be a time when we hear some more about what the investigation has turned up. Um, but after that, I mean, these things take a lot of time. So uh, it, it's unclear when we might know more. But but obviously, the police department and the city is feeling the pressure of the international spotlight that's been placed on them. So I would imagine they're trying to get the answers as quickly as possible. Seven days have been covering this story. The weekly paper out of Burlington, Colin Flanders, much appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Welcome back, everybody. Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, FM, and AM. Lee Cattell here with you. And if you want to join in on our conversation with Wade Pearson of Northeast Slopes, jump aboard. 802-244-1777. Toll free, 877-291-8255. Hey, Wade. 
Good morning, Lee. Good morning, everybody out there in WDEV land. You uh, take a run down the slopes today? You got enough snow on there to make a run today? We No, we've just been, been too busy. We're not uh, quite thinking about opening up yet. We're, we're still, it's preseason for us. Our targeted opening date, although we have beat it a couple times in the last half a decade, is day after Christmas. Okay. And uh, still what we're shooting with, but I don't know. Roger's forecast may... Uh, preempt that and get us uh, get us going a little bit before that. We're not sure yet. I'm surprised somebody didn't haul you up that hill in a four-wheeler and let you go down at least once before we get the season underway. Well, I, we did have to try out O'Leland, our, our, our bombardier snowcat, and make sure everything was working. So went over to the beginner slope and went right up the tow line. We have about four or five inches of really, really good base here. Um, it hasn't been... You know, hasn't been uh, groomed or tilled in or anything, but it's completely covering the hill. So yeah, totally skiable, and and I think I did on purpose put one one downhill uh, ramp from the top of the beginner slope down towards the lodge. So if the conditions are right, uh, we may throw on the boards, go up a little rope toe, and, and take a test run down. But we haven't done that yet. Well, good. I hope they're going to throw about eight more inches of heavy wet on top of what you got already this weekend. Yeah, that's that's really good for building base, as you know. Uh, we are all natural snow, and, and uh, as Ken and I used to joke, um, our, our snow comes from a higher source. So we're we're uh, we're waiting for that to come. For sure. Well, that's for sure. Hey, you can ski from a higher source and at a lower price at Northeast Kingdom, where it's a community-run organization, and it's uh, it's in terms of if you want to. Take a look at cost outlay for how much it costs to get your kid to go skiing for a winter, and you compare it at any other resort versus Northeast Slopes, you're going to find that skiing at East Corinth is uh, both fun and highly affordable. It is. Our, even our weekend day tickets for Whole Mountain, it's not age-restricted or, or beneficial either way, just a Whole Mountain, which is a T-bar, both both rope toes that they're running, a beginner slope, Um uh, 15 bucks on the weekends and uh, $10 Wednesdays and Fridays. And all of our days, we've since COVID, you know, a lot of things changed. We had to scratch our heads a little. And, and we really found it was beneficial both to man the lifts and to find volunteers. We have changed our hours from that early morning attempt, uh, especially on the weekends, uh, to noon to four or as late as we can go by the daylight and play the crowd. And that has worked out really well. Well, and at fifteen dollars, I don't even know how you stay in business down there. The these other mountains are charging, you know, triple figures for a day lift ticket down there. So for you offering up fifteen dollars for adults and ten dollars for kids to go uh, skiing at Northeast Slopes, well, I, I just don't know if you're if you know what you're doing down there. Well, we we may not, but as long as the as long as the books balance up at the end of the year, and we do that every year. And we can make it and still offer it at this price, um, then we will continue to do that. Again, instead of raising the prices, we did shorten our hours. So it's been a little bit of a, you know, trying to cover a little bit of the, a little less overhead, which wasn't much, but right. mainly just manning the list. And, and it's really one thing we need, we want to emphasize today. Um, yeah, we operate, but we can only operate with all of the lift, all the uh, lift people that we have, uh, that help us out on a daily basis. So every day we're open. And that brings me to this weekend. If you go to northeastslopes.org, two things are going on. One is our annual um, ski swap, ski sale, be in the lodge. Lots of skis, lots of boots, um, a lot of youth sizes. 
really cheap. Um, just to get people started, if you can't go out and get a lease or don't have your own equipment already, stop by tomorrow. I think Colin and Genevieve will be uh, fitting people. And, and uh, matter of fact, Colin just walked in, and in a minute he can tell me what they're going to be charging for prices. But and we can go from there. And then immediately following that, that's going to be 9 till 1. Saturday. And immediately following that. Yeah, Saturday, tomorrow. Yeah. Um, immediately following that is our annual lift operator training. And there's several positions, depending on, you know, how involved you want to get. Uh, starting out with the, the beginner slope, uh, it's great to be over there, watch that rope toe, hit the button, stop the, stop the old uh, dodge dart <laughs> when the rope's going. If somebody, you know, falls or it needs to get out of the way, and then you, we got a starter button, you just fire it back up. And even that takes the training, and you just got to have the basic knowledge to start it up and get it started and yep. put some gas in. And run it for the day and take shifts. And and then another easy-peasy uh, for somebody that's um, not real physical, like loading the T-bar, is uh, the top T position. And, boy, that's that's a cushy job. You get up, we chauffeur you to the top. You get into sit in a nice uh, leathery-looking office chair and a heated booth with an incredible view of the White Mountains and down over the slopes. And you're the same thing. You're just up there keeping a watchful eye on everything. Uh, if there's a problem with a tee or a skier, you know, piles up on the off-ramp or something, you just kill the, kill the button, talk to the bottom, start the ramp back up, make sure everybody's all right. And that's an easy-peasy job, too. And then yeah. the real skilled job comes down to the bottom, uh, loading tees. And, and that's we've really been able to refine that down where we can slow it down for people that aren't familiar with it or beginners. Um, you just kind of pull that thing down you get it up underneath their pockets and make sure they're headed in the right direction. And then we hit the, the uh, regular speed button up to the top they go. And then that can be uh, quite a workout, you know, two hours at a time or, or all day. <laughs> so your training, <laughs> so, so your training for that is a Saturday afternoon. <clears throat> Yeah, Saturday right after the ski sale, and then another session, if you can't make it Saturday, uh, 10 o'clock Sunday morning. We're planning on doing that, too. And we'll be training people in, in, in each of those positions. And you can train in in any one or two or all three of those positions. Yeah, come volunteer at Northeast Slopes. It's a labor of love at Northeast Slopes. It has to be because they don't pay anything. <clears throat> well, well, you get, uh, if you if you do a two-hour shift, you get to ski for a couple hours if, if we... If we uh, let you off the hook, and we do feed you lunch. So oh. there's a little compensation. Okay, so there. Yeah, it's not monetary compensation, but it's it's plenty of good stuff there. A day of skiing and a, and a meal there at Northeast Slopes, where uh, you make the uh, world famous. Uh, what is that thing you call it? The Nor'easter Burger. Well, we had Nor'easter Burgers. We have a version of Nor'easter Burgers. There's been a few changes, and we need to update, you know, the signs and the website and everything. Uh, we lost our we lost our buns. <laughs> Put it that way. And it, it definitely changed the complexity uh, and cuisine of the old Nor'easter burger. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been relentlessly searching for others. And we've got uh, the company closed, Coltina Bakery, uh, Don Morgan down in Bradford, closed up his shop. And they were one of a kind. And, again, we, we've got about five half-dozen bags still in our freezer from four years ago. And once in a while, we'll, we'll take one out for a special occasion and make a real Nor'easter burger. But they're, they're pretty sought after. Ah, so a little bit of history. I love it. And, of course, you are the institutional knowledge at Northeast Slopes, Wade. So, uh, you know, you're the one that's – you're the the peak of all of the knowledge that goes on on that slope. You basically know how to do everything that's there, right? 
Well, we try to, but it's still it's, it's still a, a whole group of volunteers. You know, lift maintenance, snowcat maintenance, grooming. Um, again, we 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 cannot operate without the volunteers that actually keep the lift spinning and and. Uh, we, you know, and then we do some informal lessons here. We do those during the week. We do have a school program for the local school, and we now actually have a couple other schools that, that intend to come down or, or are coming down this year, too. So they come midweek, so that's a good filler in the middle of the week is to have an extra, you know, 70 or 80 kids on the slopes. And oh. We love it, and, you know, some of the some of the uh, ski areas, not so much, um, is, is what they found, too. And they, they love to come here during the week. It's pretty informal, and get them up and going, and, and they, they have a great time. We're talking with Wade Pearson at Northeast Slopes along Route 25 in East Corinth, getting ready for hopefully a deep snow winter, uh, and at northeastslopes.org. What is your title exactly at Northeast Slopes? Well, Vice, Vice President and Chief Rope Toologist. Okay. Who's the owner? Uh, we just, we're just in a, a private uh, 501 association and we have a 11 member uh, uh, board that officiates everything and that's us it's a secret but, ski conglomerate well nobody really does no we're just a, we're just a non-profit <laughs> um, community ski hill and and keep offering this inexpensive skiing and and uh, listening to one of your last commercials the big buck contest I thought it was a doe over here on our open slope tracking things up, and and I think believe it had a set of set of antlers on it. It just went out into the woods up towards the power line trail oh. on the open slope. Hey, that's that's pretty the exciting. Wildlife here too. Yeah, uh, uh, that's right. Uh, so, uh, uh, do any folks ever use the trails in that area during hunting season, or is it posted? It's not posted because um, we're you know we usually don't ski before the sure you know all the seasons including muzzle muzzle loader season is up so um, we welcome people to use it you know responsibly uh, we have people who come here and and do uphill travel and ski on their own and uh, that's um, well no policy is good policy so people are welcome to do that people hike the trails of course we have a, the uh, endurance running event here during the uh, during July, usually June or July, and so it gets utilized for uh, other things besides skiing. And and uh, we do see a lot of people stopping here and, and hiking up the hill. It's a nice little hike because it's open, got a good view. Um, it's not the end of the world to do you know 360 vertical and, and 1400 feet. It's a nice steep walk, but it's it's not like climbing the weights or anything. All right, uh, we're talking with Wade Pearson from uh, Northeast Slopes in East Corinth and. We've got Forbes on the line, and uh, Forbes is another Corinth area resident. Good morning, Forbes. Sure am. Uh, what a great success story that is. My my two boys started off there from infancy, and there isn't a mountain in, in the United States they can't deal with today. And I'm sure if you look at some of the history of some of the, the beginners there, they probably have moved on uh, into some... Uh, Pretty high positions in the ski ski factor. Um, the Cochran family is another great story of how uh, that was a great breeder zone for some great skiers. And uh, it, uh, with the volunteers, it uh, it makes uh, the price of a ticket uh, uh, affordable to people that couldn't even begin to ski later. So it's a it's a great thing, great oh. community. And Wade's done it. 
Forbes, I appreciate the comments. Uh, Wade, that's an important thing to think about. You know, if you're only paying whatever your season's pass is, is affordable. Folks can come in there and ski every day. And getting on those slopes day in and day out is part of what uh, leads to make uh, the skier that can become a Michaela Schifrin down the road. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and even not so much that, everybody, you know, that's a pretty far cry, but not impossible. We like to you know that she sets that example for for anyone to do that. Right. Um, but we more so we've had uh, people go and most of them are out West now, of course, but not all of them. And they end up in positions at, you know, significant ski areas um, and area either in avalanche control or they're, they're lifelong ski patrollers. And, you know, some of those people are in their fifties and late sixties now, and they're still in those positions and have been since they've left the, the Vermont area. And uh, Forbes, was there anything you wanted to finish up with? No, other than that, you know, it's a, it's a great story, and it's a, a long story, and it continues, and thank goodness for it. All right, Forbes, we appreciate the call. Hey, uh, Wade, uh, now we know the day after Christmas you'd like to get up and running for the season, uh, conditions permitting. Are there any other events over the course of this winter that are already on the Northeast Slopes calendar? Well, we keep our eye on the horizon, literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, if things are going well, conditions are good, uh, usually around mid-February, it, gets, it usually aligns with the school vacations, uh, we'll, we'll try to come up with um, either our infamous um, cardboard box race derby, <laughs> which is always fun, or we alternate, alternate that with a, uh, a uh, winter fest right. where we'll have uh, some music out on the deck, and uh, ski events. We have a vintage ski race. Uh, we've even now renamed our great up and downhill race, which was um, a race that originally took place in 1938, back when like Tony Matt was uh, over there on uh, Tuckerman's Ravine doing the Inferno. And it was a race that actually competed with those where you did a slalom, grabbed the rope, <laughs> ran back at the top, hanging onto the rope, and then did a well, either a, a GS or what we would have, you know, on yeah. a small hill of a super G or something and back to the bottom. And that triple leg was your timed run. And a few years ago, we, we named that the Kenley Dean Squire great up and downhill race. Yeah. Well, and, and, and if you win it, your name is emblazoned on the, uh, the sat bucket, which hangs out on the big toe shed forever. Oh, uh, the great up and downhill race at the Northeast Slopes. I, I have been there in person for that event. It is a special uh, moment at Northeast Slopes. And I like how you do it, Wade. You don't put the dates on the calendar at the start of the season. You wait and see where things lie and pick a spot and try and jump in the flow. Yeah, and, and we do have a project, and, and we may be able to put something together with WDV and, and have some kind of a ceremony here again. One, it's the 15th year of our T-Bar which uh, Ken came over and did the opening, uh, cut the opening ribbon for that 15 years ago, hmm. day after Christmas in 2009. So this will be the beginning of our 15th season, and, and we might do something with that. And there's been rumors, and we're starting to break ground, that um, we're going to have a new bridge over here. Uh, a new bridge. Oh, now, wait a minute. Is is this to replace the uh, Beetlejuice Bridge, or what's going on in Corinth now? No, it's going to be in addition to the original Beetlejuice Bridges, which house our rope toes. And that was simply because my dad and the crew and everybody was around then in 1987, and they saw a pile of junk over in the village. It was going to get dumpsterized. And, you know, Vermonters just don't like to do that. So gathered up all the materials and split it in half and came over here and got new sheds for our rope toes, the old 
uh, the old Dodge Dart and the old Ford farm truck that run the ropes. And uh, they, over the next few decades, became quite a tourist attraction. And so now that Beetlejuice 2 has been shot this summer, uh, it was a no-brainer of where that now significant, twice the size, significant structure would, mm-hmm. would end up. And it's going to be uh, uh, our, pavili- our new pavilion uh, over the top of our deck and take place of our COVID tent we've had the last few years. So we're breaking ground on that, literally. Um, tried to do this week. The storms got storms and power outages got everything behind a little bit. But uh, we've already started on it. And hopefully by the time we do one of those events or after the first of the year, uh, that'll be up and going. And it'll be a, a skier shelter. And uh, it's going to be an impressive uh, building. It's all eight by eight. It's going to be timber frame now. Uh, Nick Spooner, who's uh, uh, Spooner's milling out of Newberry, he's a tim- local timber framer, and he's also a two-time w- winner of the Great Up and Downhill Race, so he's pretty famous there. Uh, he'll be uh, actually mortise intending that with pegs instead of just screwed together like the movie company had it, and it's going to be an impressive structure, and, and it's going to be a great addition to the, all that Northeast Slopes is. Every uh, every so often here on the morning news service, we'll talk about these items that go up for auction, like a you know the the lightsaber that Darth Vader used in Star Wars, or you know whatever, some doodad or item from a movie that's worth a lot of money now. And it might have been with that in mind that uh, folks went picking through East Corinth earlier this summer to grab all that Beetlejuice stuff. <laughs> well, they did. Some were not invited either, and uh, they really, really cherry-picked some of the better stuff. I think it was uh, not an inside job, because I want to say the production people and the construction companies were just absolutely fantastic, but there was somebody watching from afar and uh, getting reports of what was being left out for us, and within hours it would be gone before we could even you know, get our hands on it and put it under lock and key, which we have a lot under lock and key. There'll be a lot of surprises along that. Uh, along that story over the next year or so. And the first one is, is this the uh, the building of this bridge. So if anybody uh, you know anybody wants to buy a bridge, we've, we've, we may have one, but <laughs> it'll be here for everybody to enjoy for sure. Are the suspects still at large in that case? They are. Mm. Nothing has showed up. Uh, supposedly one of the items showed up on eBay or Facebook or something for less than an hour, and then it was taken down. It probably went up the highest bidder or something, but... And it could have been a fake, too. But uh, so we've not have had uh, I wouldn't say we've had fun with it, but it's certainly been a point of conversation. And but we do have a lot of stuff and significant things which will uh, which will come out in the future. And it'll be like a real enjoyable place to to reminisce about that that time when they did the movies here. And and it was quite an experience for several months. I lived right in the set. So, yeah, it was uh, really something. Northeast slopes. All right. So the day after Christmas is uh, their target date. Keep uh, keep abreast of their developments, both at northeastslopes.org. And they've got a Facebook page where they put updates regularly as well. And uh, either one of them will keep you abreast of the next plans for northeast slopes. But uh, hopefully a big, deep snow season. And, uh, Wade, I, I hope that uh, I hope you got a lot of digging out to do in Corinth this winter. Yeah, we may have. That's, you know, Roger says that's the way it's going to go, El Nino, and, and uh, we're going to start seeing these storms. doesn't have to be, you know, terribly colder, but as long as we get the snow and we can, we can deal with it, we may get started. I know last year we started a week before Christmas, but then we got knocked out for a few weekends with the warming and some rain and didn't work out very well. So it seems like it's a better omen to start the day after Christmas like we traditionally do and, what, and go from there. So what do you- after this weekend, we'll, we'll be posting um, – Seasons past sales. We have an early bird special that goes right up to Christmas Day. Two eighty-five for a family pass. 
no matter how many you got. One Wait a minute. Uh, All four people can ski for $285 for the entire year? Well, we have families with eight members, you know, husband, wife, and uh, and uh, six kids. Um, wow. We have several, several of those until they turn 18. Um, and, they, yeah, they come over here for $285. Wow. So now we've guilted some of them into being volunteers. So they're going to be earning, they're going to be earning their turns this year. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, hey, take advantage while they're still in business, folks. Northeast Slopes, Route 25, East Corinth, and uh, take advantage of that beautiful season's pass. And, uh, and stay tuned to northeastslopes.org for when the season begins. Wade, always a pleasure chatting with you, sir. Thanks for giving us some time today. Yeah, and I think we'll be talking soon on a frequent basis. All right, that's a Wade Pearson from Northeast Slopes here on WDEV FM and AM. I'd like to thank Lisa Scalotti from Waterbury Roundabout, uh, Harwood School Board member Ashley Woods, Bob Nay, and Seven Days reporter Colin Flanders for joining me on Vermont Viewpoint this morning. If you're just tuning in and you say, what did I miss? Go to WDEVradio.com to the Vermont Viewpoint podcast and you can find out. Common Sense Radio with Bill Sayre coming up next.